Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you're a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you're in the right place. I'm Ken Cameron. And I'm Russell Stratton. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask leaders about the most difficult conversation that they've had with their employees, co-workers, suppliers, customers, or even their bosses. We ask them how the F they managed to get through those challenging moments so you can learn from their successes and from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. In this episode, we need to effing talk to Anila Omar Lee Yen. Anila is the president and CEO of the Center for Newcomers in Calgary, and Anila has more than 25 years of experience in the settlement sector and 15 of those in executive leadership roles. She's a recipient of the Governor General's Award of Canada, a Top 40 Under 40, a University of Calgary Alumni Award, and a Top 25 Women of Influence in Canada. So a huge honor for us to have you on the show, Anila. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here today. Okay, so the uh, CEO for the Centre for Newcomers, for some of our listeners, they won't know exactly what that is. So uh, what do you do and why should anyone keep effing listening to you on the podcast? <laughs> well, we, uh, the Centre for Newcomers, we're a not-for-profit charity. Uh, we've been around since 1988. I wasn't around uh, back then. Well, I was around, but I was in you know, grade school. Um, and uh, we... Um, uh, we we help uh, immigrants and refugees and all other people that are new to Canada. So regardless of your immigration status, we help people come to Canada. And because we have a, you know, we keep growing and we keep expanding in terms of the number of um, immigrants that are coming into the country. I think it's really important um, for for people to understand what settlement services are and and how we can help the community. Because more often than not, your neighbors are now going to be immigrants moving forward. So one of the things I was interested in is immigration often is misunderstood or sometimes can be seen as contentious from certain people. So tell us a little bit more about who, who are the types of folks that are coming in, what are the trends that you're seeing, countries people are coming from, and what are some of the services that people need to make that settlement successful? Well, you know, I think there's a huge um, misunderstanding in terms of who uh, newcomers and who immigrants to Canada are. Uh, we only ever hear about our refugees that are coming into Canada from uh, from from our media, for example, right? And, and our refugees are the ones uh, globally that, of course, need the most assistance. But they're only about 10% of the almost half a million people coming in a year now to into the country. The rest are predominantly economic uh, migrants, which means they've been chosen by the federal government to come to Canada after they've applied because they have the skill set, they have the education, they have the experience to work here. 93% of those people speak English or French fluently in order to, to come here. And then they bring their families with them, of course, right? They bring their partner, they bring their children, they bring their parents often, um, any underage siblings with them. And so uh, those people may not speak English or French fluently and may require English language classes here in Alberta. So we offer English language classes, employment training, opportunities to really be able to um, understand, uh, you know, what it's like to live in Calgary, you know, where your places of worship might be, what the best grocery stores are, all of those different kind of things. And I'm curious, 
How um, complex is the, is the job training that you offer? I, I remember encountering a number of new arrivals from Ukraine and they were like in their 20s or like really like young, young 20s. And I had them over for dinner and they were talking about some of the careers they've had and how they were kind of needing to shift their career a little bit. They had been lawyers in uh, or legal assistants in Ukraine and one of them had been was, tra- was uh, learning a new tech trade. So I'm just curious when you talk about training and upgrading skills, um, to what extent do you, does the Center for Newcomers off, uh, offer that kind of training and to what extent is that useful for their? So the first piece, I think, when we start talking about you know, newcomers and, and new people to Canada and their jobs, we have a really big disconnect between their why they've been allowed to come in, right, with their skill set. So Ukrainians are different because they're they're temporary residents, but they're, they've been, they're displaced people, right? So the government doesn't call them refugees, but really in all aspects, except for the government calling them refugees, and that includes their own government, not wanting them to be called refugees, they are refugees. Um, but when we speak to uh, most newcomers coming in, the, the federal government uh, allows people to come in because they have the right skill set. Once they arrive, we as Canadians have a problem we do not recognize their credentials. And this is the reason they need to be upskilled or they need to, you know, get their, um, you know, do new certifications. And that's the biggest issue. And I can suspect right. my, myself because uh, being an immigrant myself, I, I encountered pretty much the same thing as did my wife. So, you know, the poor, and I've spoken to, to a number of people from a number of different countries who've also emigrated to Canada, and, and most of them have faced the same thing, as you say. Um, the points that you get for your immigration status based on your qualifications and work experience don't equate once you've landed to say, oh, great, so I've got a master's degree in X, I've had 10, 15 years experience in Y, so I can then go and do that job. And then you're told no, because those qualifications aren't recognized in Canada in the same way, and your experience isn't recognized. And I, I've certainly found one of the biggest disconnects is that you are, as a system, that we are um, – sort of recruiting people to come as immigrants and then on, on sort of here's the brochure and then when they arrive, um, yeah, but you can't actually do that. And I don't know why that is and why we not do a better job of being able to bridge that gap so that people can move much more swiftly into the job that they were doing in their home country that they're perfectly, you know, they're qualified for and have got years of experience of doing. So I can tell you why that is, right? So the first part is we as a society are discriminatory. We favor people that have been born and raised in Canada. And then we favor above that, we favor settlers that were born and raised in Canada, right? So um, our Caucasian, um, you know, kind of community in terms of that. And that is proven, right? So so we as a society uh, systemically discriminate against um, people in terms of their credentials. And it really doesn't make any sense because people that have worked globally have um, much better or, or equal, at least, skill set and can bring in new markets and new networks and, you know, and economically for for uh, companies that do hire, for example, more so in like, you know, engineers or, or whatever else, you know, that actually helps with with our economy. We know that 100% of our labor market growth 
comes from immigrants. So if we didn't have immigrants coming in here, we wouldn't have any labor market growth in Canada. We know that almost 100% of our, our population growth comes from new immigrants coming to Canada because we as Canadians born and raised do not have enough children, right? And so, so these are, are barriers that, that have been put in place systemically to create a hierarchy right of discrimination and and that's the biggest issue and then there are systemic barriers that get put in by uh provincial um you know colleges and and associations or by you know um inadvertently by the government right um i don't think there's never been a situation where you can see that the, that the provincial government is actually trying to prevent this but we do have a number of systemic barriers in place as well and so that's the biggest piece ken so so our first piece is to advocate for um you know the reduction of of this and to be able to recognize people's credentials in the absence of that we offer everything from basics of like resume writing, interview skills, everything like that, to being able to actually have professionals and professional instructors come in and actually recertify people and do training modules and training courses to uh, doing them ourselves on site as well. And then also referring out to, you know, to the states and the Bow Valleys, the Columbia Colleges, you know, different places like that, that can actually help people to recertify. There's a great illustration of this in a play, in a fictionalized play by the Canadian playwright David Yee from Toronto, who won the Governor General's Award recently. In one of his early plays, it's a series of immigration stories, like an anthology, so to speak. And one of the pieces is narrated by a doctor who's moved to Canada but can't use his degree, can't practice as a doctor. Um, and so in order to support his family, he's forced to work as a taxi driver. And over the course of the story, he takes his medical degree and replaces it in place of the taxi license, just to see if anybody would notice. And it kind of really makes a clear point about how we're not allowing people with degrees to be able to, to do the work we need them to do in the country. And, and in a beautiful piece, the climax of that chapter is an accident on the 401 freeway where all the taxi drivers rescue everybody and resuscitate the, uh, the victims, right? And it's like, it's a great example of how we need these people, but we're not using them in the ways that they should be. So tell me, Anila, what the F made you choose this kind of work in the first place? How did you get into this career? Well, you know, it wasn't actually my first choice. Um, you know, I was teased that, you know, when I was a little kid, secretly I either wanted to be a nail esthetician or uh, Paula Abdul, um, but I didn't figure my parents would go for either of those things um, because they wanted me to go to university. And, you know, there's there's a joke amongst us South Asian um, children that were raised by, you know, South Asian immigrants is that you, there's only like a few options, right, that you can have growing up if you don't want your parents to be on your back, right? You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, or a business person, right? And the only way out of that is if, if you decide you want to be a university professor and teach one of those things. Right. <laughs> like that's that's the only way that you're you're gonna get out of those things. And um and so for me, I decided I was going to be since I can't be Paul Abdul and I can't um, you know, design nail art and, and do nails for a living, um, because you don't go to university for for the nails. Um, I I decided I was going to be a child uh, psychologist. Um that's what I wanted to be. 
And so the opportunity arose more, I was voluntold in my summer between grade 11 and grade 12, uh, where my mom, who worked in the immigrant uh, services um, at, at the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association as a parent counselor, um, voluntold me to go and help one of her friends who was working, um, who, was, who was the executive director at the time of the Calgary Bridge Foundation for Youth. And so I was to volunteer with with uh, refugee kids. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say at that time, um, I didn't want to do it. You know, there's a term um, FOB, fresh off the boat. And I didn't want to work with them. I don't want to hang out with these kids. They're going to be nerdy. They're going to be like all these, all these awful things that I'm ashamed to think about right now. And so that's what I kind of thought. And all my friends were going to hang out and have fun and, you know, make some money. And here I was volunteering, right, to, to do this every day, day in and day out. And I didn't want to go. And it was a big fight the night before. And my dad said I didn't have to go because my dad always took my side. And then my mom kind of gave him the death stare. And that was the end of that. And I was going. Because, you know, at one point he looked at me and went, kiddo. Got the look, you're on your own. <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I went and I came back that evening and I cried my eyes out and I couldn't stop crying. And my dad got really upset and he said, I told you she doesn't have to go. And I said to him, I said, actually, no, I do want to go back, dad. I didn't know what was happening in the world. And I met kids that were younger than me. I was 17 years old and I met kids that were younger than me, 12, 13 years old. And they were telling me stories about coming on boats as the Viet Cong, you know, was chasing after them and losing family members and pirates, you know, in the open seas and, um, you know, and little children talking about how they had to move this white powder off of the faces of people to identify, to see if it was their own relatives as they were going from village to village in Iraq, as they were trying to make their way out of the country, because that's the aftermath of um, chemical bombing, right? Like sarin, or I don't know what, they didn't tell me the name, but I'm assuming, right, um, of, of that kind of gas. And so I just, it, at the time, I, I didn't have the words or the maturity to really understand why I needed to be there. And now, of course, you know, 30 years later, um, and having a lot of time to think about it, um, I, I, I admired and was in awe of the resiliency of these children. And I knew it was something I didn't have. And I knew it was something my friends didn't have. And I wanted it. I wanted that ability to have strength. And the thing that even at that time and at that age for me was watching those children and wondering how are you still smiling how are you still laughing like how are you still happy one little boy said to me that his um grandfather his mother's father owned a jewelry store and had to sell all the jewelry to get onto this boat to bring them to Canada. And, you know, uh, over the course of their journey, pirates came on and shot him and he went overboard and of course died. And this little boy is still smiling. And I was in such shock and this is all day one, right? And I'm in such shock. And I said to him, how are you able to still smile after all of that happened? And he said probably one of the most profound things anyone has ever said to me, ever. And I still remember it clearly. He said, 
how many people have a grandfather that loves them that much? And that's why he was laughing and smiling. And he said, I know he loves me. He did everything for me. And it just, you know, and I just wanted to be them. And I wanted to be there. And within two weeks of volunteering there, um, one of the university students that was helping out, because these were summer positions, uh, quit. And I, um, the coordinator at the time of the program offered me a job. And so he became my first real boss uh, when I was 17 years old. And now I'm happy to say, and the joke at the Center for Newcomers is, I always say, Harry Yee was my first real boss. And he turns around and says, because he's now my chief operating officer. And he says, and if all things go well, Anila will be my last boss. And so, you know, it's it's been a lifelong journey of uh, learning from Harry and, you know, uh, going off and doing my own things and, and somehow uh, coming back to him. It's a fantastic story. Uh, so heartwarming and heartbreaking, the story of that boy. And what also strikes me uh, throughout, threaded throughout that uh, description is that you got something from the work. You were giving something to them. You were there to help them, but it sounds like they helped you almost as much or even more. And I like the I like being reminded that it's a reciprocal relationship. Oh, I think a hundred percent. When you give of yourself, whether you're volunteering or working, and and you know you don't even have to do it in social services. I don't think, but it's just so important um, to do something and and to participate in things where you feel like you're the lucky one every day to to be doing that work, right? And that's how I feel. I feel like I'm the lucky one, not our clients, not the community. I feel like I'm always learning. I'm always feeling fulfilled. I'm always growing. There's always something new to do. And so for me, you know, I'm I'm always feel like, you know, since since 17, I felt like the luckiest person on earth to be able to do this job. It's definitely a benefit, isn't there, to doing something of service for others that isn't just about for you. It's something bigger than you, and you're doing something for other other people. But you also you know, often get some reward back in a way that you're not obviously uh, often expecting. So you mentioned Harry as your first boss. Um, hey, in terms of influential leaders or coaches or mentors you had, um, who would you want to, to name? It could be Harry, it could be somebody else. And, and how have they impacted your life in terms of where you are now? Oh, 100%. I, I very gladly will say it's Harry Yee, right? I, I think, um, you know, uh, we've come around as so many um, different iterations of being able to work together. And, you know, this last bout, you know, I, I did actually trick him into this. He had retired. He was done. He, and, you know, and he retired at a young age. Okay. Like, you know, you know, and, and he had, but he had done, he had worked as the executive director and then CEO of the Bridge Foundation for Youth for about 23 years, right. At, at that point. And he went off to do other things and, you know, and kind of was done and thought he wasn't coming back to the settlement sector. And about seven years ago, when I first started at the center for newcomers and I was on the radio for something, you know, a media outlet and he heard me so he called the center and asked for me and I was like hey because we've always kept you know in touch gone for lunch here and there and whatever else and he said to me you know he's like yeah you know I just wanted to call you and congratulate you and you know and like I'm so happy to hear this and you know that's all I wanted and I said hey you know let's go for lunch I'd love to go for lunch and he said okay what he didn't know was 
at that morning, I was staring at the job description of chief operating officer. And I was thinking, where am this is a big task. We're trying to grow. We've got so many issues. Where am I going to find the right fit for this? So I said to him, let's go for, you know, for, for lunch. And then I basically ambushed him. When he got there, I not only offered him the job description, I offered him a job letter, like an offer letter. And, um, you know, and I said to him, um, please do this. I need you just a year. Like, please, 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 please. And he was so caught off guard. He had no idea that that's what was, that's what we were going to do. But the reason why is the one thing that I learned from Harry is treat your colleagues, your staff with dignity and respect. That was something he always did. And he always advocated for the uh, best pay in the sector. He always advocated for the best benefits in the sector. And, you know, and he he had a vision for a community hub. And he will tell you, you know, every single time this, you know, no, no, Anila did this. But we have this beautiful new building, right? And we are a community hub. And everything that we've been able to put into that hub and every vision that I've had, I've listened to Harry over the course of, you know, 17, 27, 37, almost 30 years of working with him, you know, in terms of what makes a community a community and what makes a leader a leader. And so to me, you know, personally, anyways, the building of this uh, community hub is my love story to my older brother, to my mentor, to my friend in terms of I, you know, and I get teary about it because for me, it's a Harry, I heard everything you said and, um, and this is the result of it. And we get to help more people together. So. And Neil, you mentioned the phrase there, uh, everything that makes a leader, a leader. And I just want you to elaborate on that. What are the things that make a leader a leader? In short, what's the most important personality trait or strength that a leader needs to cultivate? You know, I got that one from my dad. My dad was a very dynamic leader. And he always said what makes a leader a a great leader is common sense. And that common sense isn't so common. And he would... Always, he would come home and he would tell us these stories, right? My dad worked in a factory. He lost his credentials. He was a, a, a high school um, assistant headmaster, so like a vice principal high school. And he lost those credentials and he worked in a factory cutting aluminum and he worked his way to the top to become a foreman, so manager in a windows and doors company. And um, he would come home and, and at dinner time, and he would tell us stories. And I remember them very clearly because he would always speak to, we put in rules in place in society and in our businesses because that way everybody is doing the same thing and you don't have chaos. But sometimes for an individual, those rules won't make sense. And it's up to the leader to pay attention to that and pay attention to the dignity and the needs of every person that is working, you know, under you. And so, uh, that is, I think what makes a leader a leader is not being so busy and not, you know, not missing, um, not missing the tree 
for the forest, right? We always talk about, you know, the opposite, that you're so busy at, at looking at the trees that you're not paying attention to the forest. But he would always say, no, as leaders, we often pay too much attention to the forest and we don't pay enough attention to the trees. And so, you know, sometimes you have to break the rules or you have to bend the rules in order to accommodate somebody so that they are able to, to feel dignified in their work environment. And I love that um, analogy that you give there, and, and it sort of echoes with me having sort of worked in the leadership space for the last, you know, thirty years with new and and existing leaders. And one of the things I've always said to people: you've got to understand the individual, the people in your team. You need to understand them as individuals. They're not just employees, and they're not just a cookie cutter. That they're all the same. They all have their individual. Um, needs and wants their individual skills and we need to understand those so that we know which buttons to push and which levers to pull with people to get the best out of them so there is that degree of needing to understand their individual nature which i I welcome you um, sharing with us so with that sort of we're on that sort of leadership um uh, piece of the uh conversation at the moment so i'd like to to uh, just change gears slightly to thinking about is there a film tv show a book uh, something you've watched or read that you think taught you a leadership lesson? And if so, what was it? Sure. There's been many, many, many ones. But, you know, uh, Ken and I have known each other for a few years now. And uh, I think he knows that I have an immense love of uh, all things sci-fi and fantasy. There isn't a sci-fi fantasy book, TV show, you know, movie that um, I haven't watched or read. Um, I love it all, all genres of, of everything. It was how my husband and I connected many years ago and continues to be a passion for us. We named our puppy Sith from Star Wars um, because uh, I really always had this dream that I was going to have this big dog and one day I'd be able to say, Sith, attack! And, you know, and uh, she's really great at it now. So I'm really happy. Um, You know, she's also a darling, but also can do the Sith attack. So it's great. Um, uh, But uh, so I'm going to choose Star Wars. And I'm going to choose um, for those people that, you know, maybe know of Star Wars in the passing or have watched, you know, the first original uh, three, maybe not, maybe don't know much about this. But um, I'm also, as Ken knows, I'm also a cosplayer um, from time to time. And I cosplay a character called um, Ahsoka Tano. And uh, she was Anakin Skywalker's Padawan. So, um, you know, in the Star Wars franchise, uh, there's always two, right? In a in the the good guys, the Jedi's. There's always a master and apprentice, and then the bad guys, the Sith. There's always a master and apprentice, right? They're always in pairs. And Ahsoka was Anakin Skywalker's apprentice, and Anakin Skywalker, of course, went to the dark side and became Darth Vader, the bad guy. Uh, but there was a specific moment in the Clone Wars which really introduced Ahsoka Tano as the Padawan, where she was accused of. Uh, a crime that she did not commit because of course she was a Jedi in training and a good person and everything. And the powers that be the Jedi council that are supposed to be the best of the best and, you know, are ethical and, and moral and all those different kind of things. They uh, condemned her. And so she basically had to run away. Uh, And, when it came time to them realizing that she was not, um, it wasn't her and they wanted to bring her back and they apologized and all those things. 
She said, no, I'm done with this. I am no Jedi, right? Because it was, it, she realized that too much of a hierarchy, too much of, you know, politics get involved when you have a hierarchical structure, anything like that. To me, it's the same as when you get too involved in like organized religion or too involved in a political party, which I've done both of, so I can speak to, right. You know, or when you get, um, any of those different kind of things. Um, and I think the, the biggest, uh, strength or like the trait or that a leader needs, um, you know, uh, that like in, in terms of that is the ability like Ahsoka Tano to, to step back and say, no, like this is, this is where I started and this is what I did. But, um, I, and it wasn't about, she didn't forgive them. She just no longer believed in blind service. And I think that to me, that's one of the biggest leadership lessons I've ever learned is that rules are there for a reason, of course, but um, they can be wrong and and people in positions of power can be wrong. And even with the trying to do everything exactly the right way. And the biggest thing for me in that lesson is that sometimes you have to say no and you have to walk away when the entire world is is saying, are you nuts? Like, don't do this. And for your own integrity, you actually have to um, bear the accusation of, of, um, you know, of, of being a traitor or whatever else. And, you know, like, and, and and unfortunately it happens more often than not, even in mundane jobs and mundane lives, like we all lead, right. We're not Jedis and Sith, you know, but, but it, it, you can equate to that, that there are times where you, you take a stance based on integrity and you're called a traitor. And it is just par for the course of being a leader. Thanks so much for that. That's a great place for us to pause and take a little intermission, because when we come back, we're going to talk about the most difficult workplace conversation that Anila has had. And I think we're going to talk about one in which you're putting yourself on the line and risking being called a traitor or be risking being called somebody who's not following up. So let's take our little intermission break here. When we come back from our advert break, we're going to hear about the most difficult workplace conversation that Anila has had. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. And agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And, and what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real-life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker 7 
and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Hey, welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk To You podcast. Uh, we're speaking today with Anila Omar Lien. Uh, so in the second half of the uh, conversation, we'd like you to tell our listeners about the most difficult workplace conversation that you've had. So maybe it went really well. Uh, maybe it went terribly because uh, sometimes uh, we and our listeners learn more from our mistakes and our successes. Um, this could be a conversation you have with an employee, a peer, supplier, client, or even your boss. Um, we don't mind. And of course, you can keep it as anonymous as you need to, or equally, you can um, name and shame if you wish to. So it's, we'll leave that up to you uh, in terms of the circumstances. So um, yeah, have a think about the uh, most challenging conversation that you've um, had at the workplace. Ken sort of gave a little teaser to that earlier on. So uh, take it away. Anila, it's over to you. Yeah, you know, I, I think the most challenging conversations I have in my workplace at the Center for Newcomers, working with so many people from diverse backgrounds and working with the community at large as well in wanting to welcome newcomers into the community, is really around this uh, concept of, of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and often justice is included in that, right? So we have lots of uh, training opportunities. We have lots of conversations with people. People want to learn more. People want to learn more about our different types of clientele. And uh, we often end up in situations where uh, it, it can be really difficult to talk to people that are genuinely on their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey and may also be considered experts in this space yet have a different outlook than I do or, you know, in, in terms of how that gets expressed. So to illustrate that a little bit better, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, in, in politics, we know that there is, um, you know, there's right-wing politics, there's left-wing politics. This is how people, you know, on a continuum, most people in Alberta poll actually dead center right? In, in terms of that. Um, so most people are kind of like, you know, here on like right wing on some issues, left wing on some issues, mostly central on everything. And of course, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, we, we know that extremely on the right, like extremist on the right, not like normal people that, you know, believe in conservative politics and are, are quite normal you know, you know, people that are our friends and our neighbors, our loved ones, but really right wing people um, can believe in, uh, you know, white supremacy, are homophobic, um, are going to spew nonsense against uh, Jewish people and Muslim people against women, you know, all kinds of things, really hateful things. And as a society, we know that this is wrong. 
And it's very easy. If somebody were to come up to me and were to start calling me a bunch of racial slurs, I'm a you know woman of color. Um, I think a lot of people in, in the community would know and that that's wrong and would want to say something. Even if they don't say it, they would want to say something because they know that this is blatantly wrong. But when it comes to the left-wing extreme, so people that are extremely liberal, what, what, I, what I term the extreme woke community, right? That's also problematic. And that's a harder conversation. It's easy for me to have a conversation or, or even just get angry at a racist person or a homophobic person or a misogynistic person, xenophobic person. And everybody says, yeah, of course, those people are awful. Like, how could you feel that way? Right? It's harder to have a much more nuanced conversation or to call out somebody that is extremely left wing. So I'll give you an example. Recently at the Center for Newcomers, we had training. And we often do training for the community. And this training was about um, our LGBT plus refugee uh, community. We work with a lot of uh, of refugees. Uh, they've been displaced from their home country because of uh, fear of um, who they are, because it's either criminalized in their country uh, to be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, you know, any of those um, acronyms, or... Um, or the society is very um, unfavorable to them, even though there are no laws there, but they can still come into real harm. So my, my colleague, Dr. Kelly Ernst, who's a renowned expert in all things uh, LGBT+, plus, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, educational psychology, that's what his PhD is in. You know, he supervises uh our clinical staff in in terms of our case management. You know, he's he's a he's won many different accolades for the work he does, and he's just a genuine, wonderful human being. He also happens to phenotypically be Caucasian, right? Settler community, white skin, you know, um, and identifies as as a gay white man. Um, and uh, he was doing this uh, this. Uh, training. And what we receive back in the evaluations, right, which are all anonymous, so we don't know who said what, so it makes it harder to address, you know, the conversation or whatever else. Uh, but he was called out for, for a term he used. And he was called a white supremacist. And that was, of course, very hurtful for him. But Extremely hurtful for me as the CEO of the Center for Newcomers, because the implication then is as the CEO, I have directly hired a white supremacist to work at my organization and, you know, that I would allow a colleague to be talking to people that was a white supremacist, right? And also, um, over the course of the last five or six years, I've gotten to know Ke uh, Kelly very well. He's now also my close personal friend, like I, I love him and to see him hurt that way. And to see him be hurt that way was very hurtful to me personally as Anila, not as the CEO, but just as Anila, as a human, because he doesn't deserve that. And what was said was what he had said was he was talking about and often, and I do this as well, right. As, um, we'll talk about things that 
that as a practitioner, uh, you might hear clients say new terminology, new words that you may not understand or you may not have heard, or ways that clients will refer to themselves or refer to their community. So, for example, a number of our our clients that are LGBT plus will never refer to themselves that way. This is an English or North American or Western construct of how we see gender diversity, how we see sexual orientation. It may not culturally be that for them. It's very hard for us because this is how we construct these things to think that, well, obviously this is the only way, but there are other ways that people will identify and they they may not identify as gay men, even though we would identify them that way. And again, the dignity of the human being is what is at the center, right? If they say they don't identify that way, it's not because they are rejecting themselves or rejecting who they are. They just have different cultural or linguistic constructs around the same concepts, right? Many cultures don't have pronouns the same way that we see pronouns. So they don't really care about pronouns, right? And even if they're gender fluid, right? Because they're like, well, in my language, we don't actually have pronouns. So I don't, I don't really care if people call me he, she, they, whatever, you know? And again, it's not being derogatory towards the way that we envision pronouns. So Kelly was speaking to this term that some of our clients use, um, when they say that even though there are laws in place potentially to protect LGBT plus rights, the community doesn't care. And they will adhere to what they refer to as jungle justice. And jungle justice basically being that the community themselves will decide what punishment you get for being gay or lesbian or or whatever else, right? And that could be anything. It could be really extreme to, you know, um, necklacing where they take a tire and they put it over your head and they set it on fire. You know, I've, I've had clients tell me that that's happened to them or to, you know, to other forms of discrimination or, you know, or, or problems. And the feedback that we received was that Kelly should not be allowed to use the word jungle justice and that it's racist. And for him to say that, and that he's, he's um, showing white supremacy and even talking about it because you shouldn't talk about it. To me, that is an extremely, what I call extreme woke behavior right? You're going outside of the context of what people are saying. You're not listening to that. And all you've seen is the color of Kelly's skin. And because of the color of Kelly's skin, you are now condemning him for words he used that he is actually an expert in, right? And um, in my opinion, you're no different than somebody on the extreme right, because now you're judging based on skin color. And yes, there are certain instances where, um, quite frankly, a, a you know a Caucasian person or white person should not be using a term, um, you know, uh, in in terms of describing something because that is specifically for a very specific group, and the oppressors traditionally have been, you know, the the white community, and people get that. But this, in my opinion, wasn't one of those circumstances, and so you know, it's difficult because it was anonymous, right? And anonymity is a big issue we know in social media, but also can be in these instances when in what would have been better would have been for that person 
to have put their hand up and say, hey, Kelly, I'm offended that you actually said this, you know, because of this, this and this. And Kelly is highly skilled and highly trained in all of this work. And he would have turned around and said, because I've actually had this conversation with him. He said, well, if they would have just told me right then, we could have had the conversation around it. And maybe Kelly would have come to the conclusion, we don't know, that you're right, I shouldn't use that term, you know, because of what you just said. But in the absence of, of any of that conversation and that nuance, it doesn't make any sense to call Kelly a white supremacist, right? And I think we need to be very careful. I think cancel culture is important and canceling people is important because it's a consequence to bad behavior that I think we should adhere more to in our community and our culture. When people are behaving poorly and are not willing to change, we should cancel them. We shouldn't use our energy on them, but we can't do it indiscriminately. Everything is a nuance. And so that's always a difficult conversation that I need to have at work is that not everything is racist. Not everything is homophobic. Not everything is misogynistic. And we really need to discern and we really need to have more open conversations around it. That's a uh, really useful story. Thank you, Anila. I think it also, um, in your description of it, you talked about how a, a different choice that you and Kelly would have appreciated more was if the individual had engaged in the moment with, hey, I'm not comfortable with that uh, phrase, and I wonder why you've used that phrase, and can we talk about that? I, I think it refers to something that, um, there's an article that my wife posted online recently that was... Um, uh, distinguishing between calling people out and calling people in. So what happens if instead of calling people out and um, rejecting people immediately, and as you described it, often anonymously, what if instead we engage with that person, we call that person into the discussion, and we seek to learn uh, from that, from where that person's coming from, why they're using that term, maybe we learn something, and maybe we have the opportunity to educate the other. And I think that's an uh, interesting um, uh different choice that you've given us. Well, and absolutely, you know, I think for me, what's, what's, you know, what I really want to reiterate there is that Kelly and I may, after having a full conversation or, you know, definitely me, and I, and I, I'm, I'm sure I can speak to Kelly for on this as well, may have said, oh, we shouldn't use this anymore. But right now we don't really know why you know, beyond the fact that this one person thought it was racist when we're trying to have this conversation. Whereas, and, and, you know, and if you don't want to have the conversation in full in front of everyone, you can always call afterwards. You can always have an email afterwards. You can always, you know, anything else afterwards to continue that conversation. If you want to have it in a more one-on-one kind of a a space. I think what you, you highlight there is for, for, for saying in some of these instances, it's just easier to say that. It's easier to call somebody out and call them a white supremacist than actually to say, have the conversation. Because if you're having the conversation, uh, and, I, and I've, I've found this once or twice, would be then they might have to actually admit that they're not right. And, and it could be that in this situation, you said Kelly could admit perhaps that he was wrong to use that. But equally, he could be absolutely justified in using that because he's using the language that clients have given him and said, this is how they've described it. So the fact that somebody else hears it and that wouldn't be what they would use, but that's not, you know, the authentic language that's been used. And I have a couple of examples of this where I've sort of, I was dealing with a, a complaint uh, of uh, uh, racial slurs that were being used, uh, had been used against someone. And 
in going through and reading out the complaint, in the act they'd given, the person had, had given it, this is exactly what was said to me. So in terms of discussing this, a way of finding how do we then investigate this, how do we then find the suitable um, you know, a punishment for the person that did it, you actually had to look and see what was said. And when it was read out, somebody said, oh, that's incredibly racist for you to have said that. They said, but repeating what the person has said, the complainant has said, this is what was said to me, and they want the actual words to be known because how can you then deal with it if you don't know what was actually said? You just say, well, somebody said something that I thought was racist. They said, well, what did they say? And they told you exactly. So we ended in this strange situation of saying, well, if we can't actually look at the words that were actually said, how can we deal with the situation to know what was actually said? And the other thing that came uh, not dissimilar to that, which came up on one of our uh, podcasts, I think it was our uh, New Year podcast, Ken, the one that we have um, back at the beginning of, of 2023, um, was this idea about the overuse and misuse of words, where I think you mentioned that you mentioned about white supremacists here, and I said about use, the overuse and misuse of the word racist. And an example where people were using the word racist to what they really meant was, I disagree with what you've said. But if I use the word, it's racist that you've said it, then immediately what happens is people back off. And they were using it in the context of a case study that we, I was doing with a group of students. And they didn't agree with the decisions made by management in the case study. And when I asked them why, they said it's because it's racist. And I said, okay, that's the first time anyone's ever said that. Why is it racist? And they said, because we don't agree with it. And their the logic behind it was really, well, there's nothing in the case study that gives any indication as to uh, race or ethnicity of any of the participants, employees, unions, management, but you've assumed that it's racist because, well, probably the employees are going to be from a, a minority background and the, and the managers are probably going to be white and therefore their decision is racist. And I said, well, you're making an awful lot of assumptions here about this manufacturing company. First of all, you're assuming that the managers are going to be white when in fact they may not be. And why would you automatically assume that all the staff would be from minority groups and that their decision is racially based? But they used it that, com, you know, compared, I don't agree with this, therefore it must be racist. And I said, the problem with that, when I talked to them about it, I said, if you do that with everything, then what happens when you come up against actual racist behavior? What about those people that you mentioned earlier, Anila, the people who are far right, you know, the neo-Nazi, the Ku Klux Klan member, when do you actually, how do you describe them and how do you deal with them if you've used the word for everything that you just don't like? And that was my concern, because are we then doing a disservice to actually trying to promote diversity and inclusion and equity um, and justice, because we're not going to help this, because we're, we're fiddling around with some of this stuff that's, uh, and, and getting the wrong end of the stick. You know, Russell, I think it's, it's interesting, because when you tell me about that specific case study, I can see why someone would make the assumption that the majority of the factory workers are uh, people of color and the majority of the managers are not, right? Because it's actually the lived experience of most people in, in the Western world and in North America. So it's it's interesting in, in that situation that, you know, 
if that were blatantly obvious that that's who that was, then there, there could be a different trajectory. But with in the absence of that, right? And I think for the for the the purpose of the case study, there was probably other you know lessons that were supposed to be learned, right? That what that wasn't the the purpose of that. Is I just wanted to 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 reiterate that, right? Because unfortunately, the the uh, lived experience and statistically, that is actually the makeup of most uh, factories. Yeah, and, that, and that's, a, that's a fair point. I think the interesting thing with the actual case study, because the names of the case study were taken out, is that, first of, first of all, the case study was set in a case that wasn't in Canada. It was actually set right. in, 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 um, in Asia. Um, and that's, where, that's where it was from. Um, and the second thing was that the students were saying it in a group that was 90, I would say 95% um, of students of color was that the students that were making the point that it was racist were the two white students in the class. Right. So it was. I was suggesting oh, you're absolutely right. People's lived experience probably is if they were working in a factory in North America, that's probably the case, and that may be where yeah. they got it from. But when you're thinking, you haven't. My point was it was they haven't even delved down beneath the veneer without automatically right. going there without, okay, let's just have a look at the facts first and then see whether our assumption is good, bad, or indifferent. You know, I think this is where the that old adage of a little knowledge is, um, you know, I don't know what the adage is, but the whole, little knowledge is not a good thing, right? Like, you know, I, I think I think it's like you need to have um, – more information and and really study it right i think people get really excited once they start learning these concepts and they're like oh you know like i really want to help and they're and and i think people think that they're doing the best that they can right like i equate it to martial arts um you know my husband and i study martial arts he's much better at it he's been doing it longer than me but one of the things that i see often is we do self defense and empowerment classes and one of the things that's really important to always reiterate to people is this is so that you can be aware of your surroundings and get away so you can live the next day, right? This isn't so that you're going to be, you know, the next Kung Fu fighter, you know, out on the street making Kung Fu movies moving forward, right? And and people often will, I, I see it, people are like, oh, now I can take care of myself. It's like, no, now you can learn how to run, Right now you can learn how to like call 911 when you're freaking out and just run. This is not for you to stand and fight. Even the best, you know, fighters in the world do not want to stand and fight. They rather run, right? Like that's the whole point of self-defense is you don't want to engage in it. And so I think that this also happens when we start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice is that people get so excited about that, like I do, right? Like about different topics. And then you're like, oh, I'm an expert in this, or I know all this stuff. And you want to like tell everybody all these things, right? It's like when, you know, and um, like I do it, like sometimes I have to catch myself. I learn something new. And then I'm telling like one of my friends who's an expert in it, like basically what would be like a kindergarten level of, of that, but I'm so excited about it. And I think I know everything now, right? And and I think that these are are some of the things in terms of even as as educators, and it is to, to understand that and take that with a grain of salt when people are really excited and they may start calling everything racist is also having that kind of nuanced approach and being like, okay, let's talk this through just like you did, you know. 
Anila, you also <laughs> glossed over something there that I think would be really interesting to return to about the self-defense courses. First of all, um, you, you mentioned that you study you study um, uh, martial arts, but in fact, you study martial arts with a really renowned teacher, which I think is really worth mentioning. And the second point is I'd like you to kind of describe a little bit more about the self-defense courses that you brought to Center for Newcomers, because I think they're both interesting topics before we go. Sure. So, you know, I think we, we've got a few um, um, quite uh, renowned uh, instructors that are really important to us um, in my life and in my husband Stefan's life. So, of course, our first one is in Calgary. And how lucky are we in Calgary that we have one of the foremost um, respected, uh, really like a grandmaster of uh, Hungar Kung Fu in, in Calgary, Harry Chung. And he uh, teaches out of the um, Chinese Cultural Center. Um, so he's here. Um, I think um, the the other one to to mention is um, you'll see him on the cover of Black Belt magazine all the time. He's he will be in Calgary in April for a seminar. I think April fourteenth to eighteenth. Uh, Sifu Singh is uh, what he goes by. Harinder Singh Sarbwal, and he's a Canadian. Um, lives in L.A. and um, you know he's got contracts with uh, you know Century Martial Arts and Black Belt magazine, and he's just phenomenal. Um, in terms of everything he does. And I think, Ken, who you were kind of alluding to was um, our lineage in um, in our Filipino martial arts uh, comes from uh, um, the, the kind of the head of that or the guru in, in that is Dan Inosanto. So Dan Inosanto was Bruce Lee's protege and he runs the Inosanto Academy of Martial Arts in Los Angeles. Um, you'll, you know, a lot of of actors and, you know, stunt people and everyone go there. But um, near and dear to our heart is one of his students who is, you know, received his black belt from Gurodan, which is a huge accomplishment in the martial arts world, um, is our instructor, uh, Guru Alvin Katakutan. And uh, Alvin um, is from Winnipeg originally as well. So, you know, a lot of Canadian shout outs. Um, you know, we forget that um, there's a lot of expertise amongst Canadians around the the world and martial arts is certainly one of them and um and uh, all three of them whether it is um uh, sifu harry chung guru alvin katakuten or sifu harinder singh um are are really um people that have helped me and grow in my journey um to to feel like i can do things that i never thought i could do i started martial arts when i was 39 in march i turned 45 right so it's been almost six years and you know uh, often what girl Alvin tells us is that sometimes the best martial artists are the ones that start later in their life in their thirties, forties, fifties, because we now have the, uh, ability to spend time with attention to detail and really just focus. Right. Um, and so he often says that the best students are, are those, and, and I appreciate, um, him saying that even if it's only just for me, but no, he says it out to, to everyone. Um, and, um, and one of the things that I found for myself was I, 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 I felt a change in who I am. Um, I feel more confident, um, and I feel healthier because I'm able to do things, um, that I've never been able to do before. Right. Like I can, I, I have, I'm much more flexible, like, I'm almost 45 and I can roll around, right? Doing somersaults and cartwheels and all kinds of things. Okay. My cartwheels kind of suck, but I'm working on them. Um, you know, and, and all the other kind of, you know, things and, 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 you know, handstands and whatever else and, and, you know, things that I actually couldn't do 
you know, in my, in my twenties, I could do now in my forties. And, um, I wanted to bring some of that kind of awe to, to our clients. And especially during, um, COVID we saw an uptick in, uh, racism and violence against people of color. And to be able to have, um, artists, uh, martial artists, um, from Pamana Cali and from esteem martial arts, uh, two excellent schools in Calgary, um, with excellent instructors, uh, be able to come and the government, um, our provincial government has been really kind and pays for the classes. And we've got men's empowerment classes and we've got women's self-defense training. Um, and so those are two, uh, different classes because what we find with women is we have to do a lot more of, no, you really do need to be aggressive. And with men, it's no, you don't be aggressive at all. Run. Nope. Do, do not stand and fight run, you know? And so it's, it's, it's been really, um, interesting and a, and a, and a wonderful journey for myself, just in terms of doing something that I never thought I'd be able to do with really supportive people. Um, you, you know, I, I never went into martial arts as a child. I really wanted to, but I always thought the, the culture was very competitive and it was very scary. So in my, you know, middle age to be able to find very supportive communities of people, um, that, that really just want you to succeed, um, is really important. And, you know, I mentioned three, um, three men, but really a big influence in my life is one of my, um, you know, I call her, uh, my sister, um, uh, one of our, the best martial artists in Calgary, uh, right now is, uh, Josie Fierro Roxas. And, um, she is a martial artist, um, who again, started, uh, later in life, um, has only been doing this for about, I think just a little bit longer than me, but she's like a million times better than me. And, but her big thing is really about empowering women and, and showing women that, you know, that you can, you can really be anything you want at any age. And, uh, her daughter's a superstar, right? Um, her husband's uh, awesome. And her daughter, uh, just won the, uh, first female, uh, young woman to win the Arnis championship, which is a Filipino martial arts, uh, stick fighting, right? Sparring. So she's a tough little girl. And I, you know, and I think that these are stories that, you know, as much as I love my male instructors, my female instructors and, and the women in my life, it's really important to showcase them as well. And, and to know that they're here in Calgary, right? Like you can go learn from, from Josie, uh, Guru Josie anytime. Right. Um, and, and more often than not, you might have, um, you know, young Jassy helping you, right. And, 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 uh, and, and be able to assist you. And it's, it's, it's actually really humbling when you've got like, you know, 14 year old, uh, young person who is being so kind and considerate and saying, you can do it. And it's, it's lovely to live in a community where intergenerationally you can teach each other things. That's, that's a lovely story to, uh, to virtually conclude our conversation um, today. Uh, but before we do, we always like to offer our guests an opportunity to let our listeners know what are you currently doing, uh, something you've got on the book, something that's coming up maybe at the Centre of Newcomers, Centre for Newcomers, and why should they effing care about it? So, you know, to keep with this whole concept, of, or, you know, we've been talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, we have two refugee groups in Calgary that are really, um, you know, the largest groups that we're working with, of course, our Ukrainian community and our Afghani community. And we're having a much harder time because of 
and I'll call it out, racism and discrimination, getting the supports for our Afghan community members as opposed to our Ukrainian community members. Um, it's much more difficult to find housing for Afghan people. It is much more difficult to find hosts, families to, um, you know, to host them for a few weeks while we get them into permanent housing. It's much harder for them to be able to get employment. And, um, and so I think because we're human and because we care about everyone, um, I think that's why it's important to actually to care about our Afghan community and especially our Afghan women. Because, um, you know, we need English classes for them. Um, the wait list to get into free classes is like three or four months. And many of them are single moms. They're vulnerable. And, you know, we need um, we need funds. And it doesn't matter whether the funds come to the Center for Newcomers. They can go to the Immigrant Education Society. They could go to the Bridge Foundation for Youth. They could go to the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association. Like any of our social services agencies, it doesn't really matter. It all get to the same place. But we really do need to pay more attention to our Afghan refugees as as well as we continue to support our Ukrainian refugees. Okay, lovely. So if people wanted to donate, they can donate to any of those partner groups that you've just mentioned. And we'll make Absolutely. sure that we'll put those in our show notes so that people can link through. And if they wish to donate, um, then they can go ahead and do so. So thank you for giving the call out for that um, on our conversation today. So that wraps up our episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends and colleagues, and you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Anita, for being our guest. Um, thank you to Ken for being our uh, wonderful co-host. As always, goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon.